All right, guys. Well, I'm excited to be jumping into a new series this morning that's going to take us uh, the next couple of months. If you have uh, your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 1. If you want to open up your iPad or your, your iPhone or whatever other gadget you're using, tablet or whatever, you can go to cachurch.info, click on sermons and hit town center and you will see there the, the, the text, the majority of text and the notes that we're going to be walking through this morning. And when you're all done with that, you can email that to yourself. I want you to imagine that you are a Christ follower in 60-ish AD and you're living in Rome and you've come from a Jewish background. So you're familiar with a lot of Jewish themes. And although uh, being a Christian has not yet officially been made illegal, there's a lot of pressures that are put against you for claiming that this backwoods prophet in this backwoods provincial area of the Roman Empire is the son of the living God. You has been given titles that belong to Caesar, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this has been great. You remember the day as a Jew that you met these Jews who would come back from Jerusalem, who'd had this amazing experience, who, who learned about this Jesus, that he had lived and died and was resurrected, that he claimed to be uh, one with the Father, that he had gone around healing people. And you saw this as, as just making complete sense with what you grew up knowing and memorizing as a child in a Jewish home. You rem- but you, you, you remember growing up and, and you had this great affection for what you used to have in Judaism. You, you would say the Shema to yourself. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It's true, by the way. I did it. I learned that in Bible college. I still remember it. My Old Testament prof. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you still find great comfort in that. And you, not only you find comfort, but you find it fulfilled in Jesus. But everything is starting to change because there's these pressures that are coming on you because you associate with this Christ. That, that they, they, people are calling you little Christ. That's what Christian means, by the way. Oh, look at the little Christ. We, we wear it as a badge now. <laughs> oh, look at the little Christ. When you walk through the market, people look at you funny because you have your weird little private meetings. What goes on in those meetings? Sounds like cannibalism. Eating flesh and blood? When you go to the market, you said, okay, when you go to the market, you need to give your, you need to um, devote yourself to Caesar and, and give a little bit of money at the offering. Burn a little incense in the name of Caesar. And so as you walk towards your meetings in the evenings, which probably a bit more than once a week, the early church follow Christ followers, those Roman centurions are watching you because where, where are these little private meetings you're going to? This little secret society that sounds really anti-culture. It's very anti-society, the things you're talking about. Subversive, really. And you're beginning to think, man, Jesus made all these promises about coming back soon. When is that happening? And I heard all these stories about these miracles and these healings and this resurrection, but I haven't seen any miraculous stuff for a long time. Just these stories that were kind of handed to me. And as you're walking around thinking, man, you know, all the things I've given up, even my family, that I grew up learning the Shema together. We used to say it together 
in the mornings and in the evenings. Even the family is turning on you. Even people you used to go to synagogue with, those people, they turn on the street when you walk down the street. So you've got old family that doesn't want to talk to you. You have a whole culture that's pushing against you. You have the, the government that's pushing against you saying, why don't you give this up and just become a part of the culture that you belong to? So you're starting to think to yourself, is this worth it? You're walking home and you're daydreaming about this. You're thinking about this. You're mulling it over and a friend taps you on the shoulder and they said, hey, are you coming to the meeting tonight? So what meeting? Our house church, somebody sent a scroll they want us to read. It's a letter that they wrote to us. And we're all getting together tonight to, to listen to it. Are you going to come? Okay. It's like when I say hi to any of you, downtown Poco, you're like, oh, sorry, I wasn't at church on Sunday. You feel that kind of pressure? <laughs> so you feel that pressure. Sometimes I'm just saying hello, by the way. But they go, well, yeah, because you're, you're for, yeah, okay, I'll come. So you show up at this evening meeting, and there's 20, 30 people gathering around in a small home, and you're kind of feeling a little hypocritical because you've kind of let your mind go a few places this week that makes you kind of think that you're really questioning this whole faith thing because your old life just seems so much more comfortable, and you could get back in there without maybe hanging out with this church anymore. And the, the, the hostess, the, the woman of the house stands up and she welcomes everybody. And she says, guys, I'm so excited. We've got this wonderful letter of encouragement for you guys today. So you take a seat and you sit at the back because you probably want to get out there early. You don't want to get in conversation because you're just not feeling it anymore. And one of the elders stands up and he unrolls a scroll. And he reads this. He says, long ago... God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he has cleansed us from our sins... When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And the reader goes on to read things like this. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away. He reads on. Be careful then. Be careful, dear brothers and sisters. I know what's going on in your lives, but be careful. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. And as you hear the letter read, the message is clear. Don't fade. Don't fade. Keep running this race. Don't, don't, don't turn elsewhere. Don't go back to where you once were. There is nothing there for you. There is no life for you there. The God who has been at work since the beginning of time has delivered the best part of himself in the person of Jesus. Don't go looking anywhere else. Every religious act you've ever done points to your need for him. Every desire that you have tried to fulfill on your own is actually found in him. Your desire to see the, the heart of God, your desire to call God your own, everything that is, has just been a shadow in your life is a reality in Jesus. That's the invitation of Hebrews. That's the invitation of Hebrews, which I'm, I'm very excited to walk through over these next few months leading us up to Easter. 
And so today uh, is, is simply kind of a, an introduction to this letter that we're going to walk through over the next nine months. <laughs> no, nine weeks. <laughs> it's a test. Nothing wrong with nine months in Hebrews. Over the next nine weeks. So today is kind of a Bible handbook day. You don't know what a Bible handbook is. First of all, any, anyone who wants to read through scripture and, and have a good tool to study books in the Bible, you should have a good Bible handbook. I, I listed two at the end of the notes here. Um, basically, a Bible handbook will help you talk about the culture behind a letter, the person writing it, the person they were writing to, the kind of situation that was going on at the time, and, and some extra things just to help you out culturally. That's kind of what we're going to do this morning. When, when we, when we, what we find in Hebrews is, is a letter. It's, it's this wonderful doorway, this wonderful kind of, ent, enti- the entire story of the Bible is kind of caught up and connected in the book of Hebrews, in this, this letter. If you are confused by the rituals of the Old Testament, show of hands, okay. Every, if you are confused by the rituals of the Old Testament and the, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, the Hebrew Scriptures, Hebrews helps us untangle that kind of stuff. If you want a great uh, kind of entry into what the whole narrative of Scripture is, Hebrews is a great letter to read. But it does take some untangling. Hebrews at first glance does not seem to be dealing with the burning issues of our day. It starts off with a very important discussion about what God said to angels and what he didn't say to angels. Hmm. We're all thinking about that. Has a very serious conversation about the furniture inside the tabernacle. I've always been wondering. It discusses a a mysterious priest man named Melchizedek that everyone had forgotten about until the writer of Hebrews started writing about it again. And in Hebrews 8, or, or Psalms 8. And then it ends by telling us in this very mysterious way to go outside of the camp. What camp? (laughs) What are you talking about? So it's not the stuff we're talking about over coffee every day. New Testament theologian William L. Lane says this. He said, Hebrews is a delight for the person who enjoys puzzles. (laughs) It's something to unpack and try to put together. It takes work. Like all good novels we read, it takes work. Like all good books, like all things worth Uh, The effort, it it takes a little bit of time to unpack. But just a few things that I want to walk through this morning. First is, uh, what do we know about those who are receiving this letter? The first thing I would say this is they are rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures. They are rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures. The author assumes that the readers have this thorough knowledge of of all these themes from the Old Testament. There's quotes, there's, there's themes, there's topics, there's theological concepts that would not have been common among your average Greek person. People, these heroes that are listed, especially in, in Hebrews chapter 11, which, which geeky pastors call the hall of faith. Moses, Abraham, priests, sacrifices, tabernacles, temples. Uh, the author uses all, these, uses all of these things to elevate Christ. He takes all these Old Testament things as those are good, but Jesus. He uses all of them. In Hebrews 3, 3 to 6, writes this, but Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope. In Christ. So he's saying, you love Moses? I love Moses too. Moses was awesome. But 
Let me tell you about someone far greater than Moses. Let's unpack Moses in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it seemed evident that the the readers come from a a Jewish understanding of history, a a Hebrew background. But they were most likely living in Rome. There's there's a, a greeting that's sent to them in chapter 13 saying, everyone who's from Italy and visiting, they say hello to you. They all want to say hi to you. Uh, there's, there's parts in the book that, again, in chapter 13, that talk about leaders in the church. And there's a very, a very specific Greek word they use to talk about leaders that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And the only, whenever they talk about elders or overseers, it's a different word. But in, in the book of Hebrews, they use a different word to talk about leader. And other books that are associated with Rome use that same kind of description to talk about what a leader is. Also, because of the level of persecution talked about, it seems likely that this was taking place in Rome. Not a healthy place for Christians. They were definitely being persecuted. They were feeling the weight of following Jesus, about taking up their cross and following Jesus. To live as Christ and to die as gain was not metaphor for these people. It was every day. Scholars believe that Hebrews was probably written in the mid to late uh, 60s AD. And we know at that time that the threats of, of Emperor Nero were, were horrible. For those of you who don't know, one of the, the stories that's well known about what Nero would do, other than, than having Christians torn apart by lions, he would wrap Christians in tar and use them to light his garden. Did someone pick on you on Facebook this week? little context. <laughs> and, and it seems like what's going on here is they're on the cusp, and you'll see this as we go through, on the cusp of greater persecution than they've been seeing, seeing this now under uh, Nero. But it seems apparent that they've already gone through some tough stuff in the past, and they're building up to some more difficulties. In chapter 10, verse 32, right, it says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. Sometimes you, were, you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all, you, uh, when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. It's amazing when we understand our inheritance is not of this world. How little the world can do to take things away from us. That's what used to frustrate the, the government with the early Christians. It's like, well, if you, if, if you keep preaching Jesus, we're going to take your life. Well, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Oh, uh, well, they, they never knew how to deal with them. It's amazing when the world can't pin you down with all of its offerings to you. The author goes on to, to encourage them in their, their new persecution by, by pointing out the faithful who have gone before them. And we will see that when we go through chapter 11. And that it's because in the middle of this new persecution, and this is one of the things we'll hit on over and over, this early church was ready to give up and ready to give in. Ready to give up and ready to give in. There was a temptation to reject Christianity and return to the safety that they found in Judaism. To step back under the the protection of their their old life. See, Judaism had this kind of agreement with the Roman Empire that if you just kind of kept to yourself and did your, your worship in your own little group, everything was fine. But don't bring that out into the public. See, but Christianity is a movement. And movements move. 
and the gospel is news to be proclaimed. So you don't have Christianity, you don't have a church if that church is not proclaiming the gospel. By definition, it's not a church. And so these people were becoming disillusioned and wanting to back. They had been drawn from the truth of the gospel and they were ready to reject it. And this letter is a warning to, to return them and safeguard them. John Tyson, who's a pastor in Manhattan, he points out kind of this, this pattern. He was talking about a whole different subject, but I think it, it comes in true here. And we see this in our own lives of, of how we move from distraction into disobedience. From distraction, we go to a distortion of God's truth to there we move to discouragement. And why wouldn't we when we're not relying on God's truth? And then we fall into disillusion and disobedience. So if the evil one can distract you from truth, and are there not plenty of things to distract us from truth these days? Anyone binge watching anything on Netflix? Distracting us from who we are in Christ. Get caught up in news. Get caught up in, in a warped uh, attack in, in politics, in the movement of culture. To just distract us off the truth of scripture. And who runs history? That will move us to distortion. Is this really the best way to live? Did God really tell you you shouldn't live that way? Sound familiar? That'll lead us to discouragement. Why am I even living this way? It is, it's so hard when everyone else seems to, to be fine not living this. They seem happy. This will lead us to disillusion. This is useless. There's no point in living my life this way. I'm just, I, I end up tired. I end up persecuted. I end up walking on eggshells around people who don't believe the same way I do. Trying to live a holy life in this world. And that leads us often to disobedience where there's no life, where there's a complete rejection of our faith. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't usually happen overnight. Usually it's a slow fade and black and white kind of drifts into gray. <laughs> and we see this in our lives. We, we see this in the lives of people around us, the slow walking away, which is, this author says is always settling for less. Drifting away from Christ always means you're going to settle for less. The very thing the writer of this letter is trying to save this audience from, and something that rings true to every pastor who loves his flock, don't drift away. I've seen it. You're not an exception. Don't drift away. And in light of that, we see the reasons for this letter. And his, the ultimate reason for this letter is to strengthen and enlighten his readers or her readers. I know it's hard to believe, but there was a time in church history that, that Christ followers felt discouraged. There was a time in church history where it felt silly to follow Jesus. There was a time in church history it felt countercultural to follow Jesus, not politically safe to follow Jesus. I, I know it sounds wacky, but there was a time, there have been times in church history when, when individuals were tempted by the world, where sometimes they traded in discipleship and conviction of sin because the world seemed to offer so much. 
this seems to, to break the heart of the writer of Hebrews. And in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, So then, since we have such a great high priest who's entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. You know why? Because all that we are is held up in him, and he's in heaven, and he cannot be touched. Your inheritance cannot be touched. In chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. Do you know that sometimes in church history, people neglected meeting together? It's true. It's it's written down in history. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace. Not from rules about food, which don't help those who follow him. We'll look into that later. (laughs) In other words, don't walk away when it gets difficult. The very thing you should be grabbing a hold of in times of trial, many people walk away from. The very life source in times of trial. This is our author's challenge. I have it up there. To encourage a group of discouraged believers drifting from real Christianity by bolstering their commitment to draw near to God and to endure in commitment to Christ. And that is the prayer of every pastor who loves his flock. Don't drift. So what do we know about this author? the author of this letter. First thing is this. He, he, this author is a theologian. Loves theology. Not just because it's now in the Bible, therefore it's part of our theology, but prior to that, the, this writer loves to, to wrestle with the truths of God and, and unpack it, taking words and themes from, from the Hebrew scriptures and unpacking them for, for his or her readers. His knowledge of, of the scripture is, is rich, and this technique that this writer uses is, is an educated one. He, he uses this method of, of kind of moving from that which the audience already loved, affirming that it's awesome, and saying, think of how good that is when now think of how great Jesus is in light of that. He's greater than all of those things. The author was also a very gifted writer. The first four sentences of Hebrews that we just read are written in what one French commentator calls the most perfect Greek sentence in the New Testament. This, one, this person was an educated writer. The author of Hebrews seems to have this this kind of double background, which makes them a perfect person for the task before them. They have a background in in Greek thought. For for the 500 years since since Plato had written, up until the time of of the first century, there was a a belief in in this idea that there is the ideal and then there's what we can pull off. That for everything that we have in our world, somewhere exists the perfect version of that and we can never pull it off. So we, we might make a chair, but it's never going to be as good as the ideal chair. Whether it exists in heaven or somewhere or in the mind of God, you can try. Cicero, who was a first century uh, statesman, he believed that we can conceive of perfect laws. We conceive of them and how they ought to play out. We can think of what justice ought to look like, but all we enjoy is a shadow and a sketch. There was a sense that all that exists in our reality was just a sad shadow of the really real. If you ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, he unpacks this idea a bit. So to the Greek, 
This author, this, this mindset, this, this author is saying, listen, all your lives, all your lives you've been trying to get shadows to the truth. That is what Jesus can enable you to do. Everything that fades and goes through your fingers, all the things you, you run after and you want that you think is going to bring full identity and hope and joy, Jesus satisfies that. But the writer of Hebrews also has a strong, as I mentioned, strong Jewish tradition. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, he says, was, was this cry for this, the perfect priest. You didn't have to give sacrifices for himself first because he was so messed up before he could give sacrifices for the nation of Israel. We needed a perfect mediator between God and man, a, a perfect sacrifice that would make us clean before God. And so the writer of Hebrews says to the Jewish audience, all your lives, you have been looking for the perfect priest who can bring the perfect sacrifice and give you access to God. You have him in Jesus, who is both perfect priest and sacrifice. So it's evident the author had a very high view of Christ. This author loved Jesus was highly concerned with the spiritual state and endurance of this church and, uh, in Rome. And the entirety of this letter is lifting up Christ as better than any other option. And that is what we want to do in this church. We want to lift up in our, in our worship, in our preaching, in our conversations, in our community when we eat together. We want to lift up the name of Christ as better than every other option. We can offer you all sorts of ministries and things for your kids and things like that. If we don't lift up Jesus, we are wasting your time. And so he takes every hero of the Jewish faith and he says, not that they were bad, but instead, remember how great they were? Jesus is better. Moses, Aaron, the high priest, all the saints in chapter 11, Jesus is above them all. This author is enamored with the risen Christ. The final word of God found in Jesus. And the interesting thing, and I've alluded to this a bit, is that the author of Hebrews is nameless. We're so used to reading letters with people's name attached to them. Paul would sign his name. Peter, James. There's no name attached to this letter. And throughout history, there have been many speculations, but none of them have stuck. All, almost all of them uh, associates of Paul on missionary journeys and things like that. Apollos, Luke, Barnabas, Clement of Rome, the first bishop of Rome, Priscilla, one of the ladies that Paul did ministry with. But the bottom line is we have to agree with the church father origin, simply only God knows. That's only God knows who wrote. Uh, I would suggest that they were a fairly long-winded person when they got to chapter 13. After unpacking all of this theology, they said, I've written this brief exhortation. <laughs> okay. I do this on Instagram. You're giving me 13 chapters of theology. <laughs> but whoever wrote it, <laughs> we do know their purpose. We do know their purpose to protect the church against fading away. Do not fade away. In Hebrews 10, 25, it says, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. It's, it's riddled. And you'll see this as we go through. The letter to the Hebrews is riddled with warnings about falling away. And I will tell you, some of these warnings are uncomfortable. 
And for those of you who did um, uh, David Wood's um, New Testament survey class, we, we wrestled with this a little bit, and we're, we're going to talk about some of that stuff. But there are some warnings that are uncomfortable. Let's look at the next text here. For it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. We're going to have to do some unpacking. What about grace? What about forgiveness? Yeah. But please hear this. When the, when the author of Hebrews writes things like this and throughout this letter, it is not a voice of anger or judgment. It is a passionate plea to hold tight to Christ. To warn. From, from this pastoral heart, the voice of this book is one seeking to answer the question of how do we protect each other, each other, from drifting away from our faith in the face of opposition and in the face of discomfort. In Hebrews 3.13, he says, You must warn each other every day, every day, while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Chapter 6, verse 12, Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Do you guys know any people who once were Christ followers and now seem spiritually dull and indifferent? Instead, you'll follow the examples of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. It, it, it's a message to those who are on the cusp or maybe already in, in big and small ways are drifting back into a life with no room for Christ or, or that, that they're, they're, they're happy to relegate him to the margins and just compartmentalize their lives. And that's why Hebrews is important today. That's why Hebrews is important today. First, for this reason. Many who have followed Christ for years, many of us are just biblically illiterate. We don't understand the narrative of Scripture. We don't understand the story. There's this Old Testament bit. Okay, the, the neat, the people in the desert, I get it. And then we kind of took a sledgehammer to that, and now let's talk about Jesus. We don't need to worry. We can unhitch from the Old Testament. We are biblically illiterate. And, and there's this, an invitation in the letter of Hebrews that challenges us to move from elemental teaching towards maturing in our faith. In, in Hebrews 5.12, the author says, you've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Ouch. <laughs> and Hebrews is a great book to educate ourselves on the narrative of God's story. And I'm excited to be doing it together. The, the other reason that Hebrews is important today is because many are giving up and giving in. Many are doing it publicly on social media. People who have been ministers of the gospel, worship leaders are tapping out. I'm out. And I have to announce it to the world. And often it's not because Jesus is no longer the way. It's not because they have found some new truth that trumps the gospel. But because like those in a house church in Rome, they are feeling the pressure to back up 
to return to old ways, feeling the stress and pressure of a culture that says give up or stand out. Many have been happy to give up. I'm trying to remember a quote by Chesterton, something like, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's that it's been tried and found difficult. Something like that. (laughs) Look it up. Do some research. And so for us, as we walk through this letter together, I think like Christians in Rome in 60s, around the 60s AD, we too have to, as it says in Hebrews 12, 12, we have to take a new grip with our tired hands, strengthen our weak knees. See, today, like the fictitious character that I kind of talked about at the beginning, who possibly what their life might have looked like in Rome in the first century as a Christian. There are many who may be here this morning, throughout this week, have felt the pressure of a world that would rather we just keep our faith to ourselves. Might be at school, at work. We've scanned the headlines, we've, we've scrolled through social media, we have, we've felt the allure of the promises and the comforts of our culture. And we may step into this place, much like the character I explained in the, at the beginning of my message, we might step in going, I'm glad these people don't know the questions I have. I'm glad these people don't know how close I am. How hard it was for me to come here this morning. I'm having a difficult time holding on to my faith in the middle of all that pulls me to give it up. I want to be in a relationship, but, but to do so, I need to, I need to give up on Christ in some small ways. It rarely happens all at once. It's a slow fade. And the writer of Hebrews cries out, Christ is the better relationship. He trumps every other relationship. Don't give up on Christ. Say, I, I want to be recognized as, as important. I, I want to stand out. I want to, be, I want to feel like I have worth. So, so I might have to give up on my Christian convictions and kind of push them aside bit by bit. Less time in Christian community and more in, in, in shadowy pursuits. The writer of Hebrews would say, Christ is the greatest identity giver. He's the greatest pursuit. I want to have all that this culture promises. I want, I want the, the two to three cars in the garage, and the, the garage has to have a door on it too. And I want, I want a larger house, and I need a place here and a place here. I need to dine out. I need to post it all because this is where I'm going to find my identity. This is the promise of the world. It's the promise of the West that I live in. The writer of Hebrews says Christ is the better wealth, he's the better success, and he's the greatest gift. He's the greatest gain. Many of you here this morning, along with me, lament those who are no longer sitting in here. It's a slow fade. They don't have a relationship with the church anymore because after tasting the truth of the gospel, as the writer of Hebrews says, they have rejected Christ. Nailing him to the cross once again and holding him to public shame, to their own detriment, their own disillusion leading to disobedience and it didn't happen overnight it was a slow fade but I would say these words to you as I close the service this morning 
We find this description of what will keep us from a slow fade. And it's trusting God and it's serving each other. Trusting God, trusting the story he's written us into, and encouraging each other in the faith, holding each other up in the faith. In Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12, it says, Dear friends, I, I love this friendly way that the, the author writes, Dear friends, we are talking this way, but we don't really believe it applies to you. Why? Because you're sitting here listening to the letter. We are confident that you are meant for better things. And this is my prayer for us at Town Center. Things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him. How you've shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts. In order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent, leading to disillusion and disobedience. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Isn't it beautiful to see Christian people suffer well? Have you ever watched a Christian who's been persecuted at work been pushed back and you just cheer them on for the way that they're suffering? Some of you know this week that uh, a friend to this community, um, who, a, a woman who used to attend the port uh, when we were back at our other campus and has visited here a few times, um, her, her body succumbed to cancer this week in Nanaimo. Jenny Ingram was one of the most hospitable, loving people I've ever met. And even in the midst of her cancer, her, her movement to love other people and give to other people and require nothing from them was strong until her last day. She, she, would, she stayed at our home a handful of times and we would always say, she's coming to our house and she's giving us all these gifts. <laughs> she visited us just before Christmas, had gifts for, for my kids and for Lelania and I. Four days before she passed in her apartment, her statement on social media was, feeling hope and peace. That's what it looks like to endure. Whether it be physical suffering or whether it be the, the push on our culture. To live your life to the fullest, to the very end. To make it into the hall of, of faith. Don't we want our names in there? It doesn't come from running when there's trial. It comes from grabbing onto Jesus. The other thing that Jenny never did was curl up in a corner and say, I got this. She understood. I've never seen anyone use social media as well as Jenny used social media. Guys, I'm having a hard night. Pray for me. I'm, I'm, I feel pain tonight. Please pray for me wouldn't crouch down and hide. She would call out to her Christian brothers and sisters and say, walk with me through this. Guys, that's the church. Hold on to Christ and hold on to the church. That's the invitation of this book. That is my prayer. That is the prayer of every shepherd for his flock. That is my prayer for you. That you would not slowly fade for the lies that this world will offer you or the pressures this world will give you. Your inheritance is safe in Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the promise of Scripture 
that even in loss, we do not weep as those without hope. And God, that's true for the trial we walk through. We do not walk through trial without hope. As the writer of Hebrews says, our hope is secure in Christ, and Christ is sitting next to the Father in heaven. And one day, Scripture tells us, that it will be revealed to us. All that we've been hoping for, all that we've been placing our trust in, will one day be revealed to us when the inheritance of the saints is handed over to us from our brother Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your humility. That on our behalf, you would be our mediator between God the Father and humanity. That you are the great high priest. That you are the greatest sacrifice. You are the greatest pursuit. Jesus, we don't want to settle for anything else. But God, I pray we would be a church as, as is demanded by, by, by the writer of Hebrews that encourages each other. That is, as the day draws near, as things get more and more difficult, we wouldn't push away from this community. We would dive even closer. We would, we would grab onto each other even more. That we would abide in you and we would abide in your church. God, we pray for those who, are, who have drifted. Those who have said, I will put Jesus on the side and I will pursue whatever. And God, from a distance, we see the damage it has done to their hope, to their identity, to the things they've given up of themselves, sacrificed to the culture. God, we pray for their return to church, to the, to the church capital C. We pray for their return to you. And we thank you, as we've said here many times, that on the other side of repentance is a God with arms open wide, running towards us, ready to embrace us. And that is true for anyone in this room now. I don't care how you come here. I don't care where you've drifted. God's waiting to embrace you. As I used to say when I was a teenager, don't leave him hanging. <laughs> come to him. God, we thank you for the promise of Scripture that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins. There's no asterisk there. There's no footnote. You are faithful and just, and you will forgive us our sins, and you will embrace us and welcome us back in to your family. God, I pray for anyone here where that's the case. We proclaim that you're better than any other pursuit, and we return to you. If we've done it in big and small ways, if we, if we can recognize through your spirit, through his counsel and his comfort, that we're starting to drift somewhere in our lives, whether it's who we're texting and when we're texting, whether it's what we're looking at online, whatever it is, it's a slow fade. Draw us back to you through your spirit, we pray. God, we thank you for your revealed word and what it teaches us. And it reminds us that we're not the first people to walk through what we're walking through. That today, there are saints around the world who are walking through difficulties and who are being faithful. That throughout the history of the church and before the church, there were those who followed you, Jesus, that followed you, God, and, and they, they pursued you till the end. Trusting you. May we be, may we be a church that trusts you. Thank you for your love, your grace, your forgiveness. God, I thank you for this family. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I'm going to invite you to stand.
Let's respond in worship this morning. After the service, if you want to spend some time in prayer, uh, maybe Silas can just play quietly for a couple minutes or we can have the, some quiet music on. But let's, let's allow this to remain a sacred space if you need to spend some time where you are. Our, our prayer team is going to be up front here. If you need people to bolster you up, to encourage you as the day draws near in whatever you're walking through, let's, let's take advantage of that. I also want to encourage you... Um, Guys, there's, there's no use me walking through nine weeks of going through the, the letter to, to the Hebrews if you're not going to do that journey with me. Uh, so two things. Commit to coming for the next eight weeks. And secondly, uh, read the book of Hebrews this week. Thirteen chapters. If you carve the time out, you could do it in less than an hour. Um, but read it through. Mull it over a little bit so that we can better engage with this over the next two months. Let me leave you with these words from the last chapter of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, don't we need peace? May the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need in doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ 
every good thing that is pleasing to him. See, you don't do it on your own power. It's the power of Jesus Christ. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. May God's grace be with you all. God bless you. See you next week.